Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Genesis 3 begins with what we call the fall. Um, God has created a perfect world and human beings are just about to mess it up. In the previous chapter, we had explained to us the beauty of and nature of human existence, including the depth of our relationship with each other, with animals, and with the rest of nature, as well as with God. This story is going to explain to us the presence of evil, pain, death, and struggle in life. If God created it good, why is it not still all good? The choice that God made to give human beings free will means that we are free to choose evil just as we are free to choose good. And we, particularly as Methodist Christians, believe that God gave human beings free will because God wanted children, not puppets. Um, If we were not free to choose evil, then we are also not free to choose good. If we're not free to reject being in relationship with God, then we're not truly choosing to be in relationship with God. We have here in this story serpent or snake imagery. And in the ancient world, this um, snakes or serpents were attributed special knowledge of death. This is likely due to the venom that snakes injected, as well as to the fact that they shed their skin. It looked like a type of reincarnation, that they died and then were reborn and crawled out of their previous dead um, carcass and moved along. Also remember that in one of the Egyptian creation stories, the Ogdoad, um are portrayed as frogs and snakes, and the snakes were females. Notice that Eve adds to this instruction um, that God said not to even touch it. Go back and take a look at Genesis 2.17. God doesn't say touch it. God says don't eat of it. Now, to not touch it makes sense because if you don't, you can't eat it if you don't touch it. Um, it may be a lot of the rabbis teach that Adam is the one who added this, that God told Adam not to eat of that tree. And then when Adam tells Eve, he tells her, uh, don't eat it, don't even touch it. So there's this tendency of human beings that we already see to add to, to embellish, um, as we try to explain and interpret stuff. That's going to become particularly true as the rabbis seek to interpret and apply the law, the rules that God gives us for life. Um, the phrase, you shall die, um, humans were always mortal. So it's not as though they were going to live forever and now eating of this means they die. They were always going to have to eat of the tree of life to maintain life. Um, this portrays a spiritual death. When you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's a spiritual death that's going to take place in you. The choice to disobey and to disregard God is still and always will be a choice to die spiritually. If you want to live, 
You choose to be obedient to God and live as He teaches to you. That's how you find spiritual, emotional, wholeness, well-being, and that life more abundant and free that Jesus promises us. Um, This is true not only for individuals, but as churches. If we disobey, disregard, ignore, if we don't get on board with what God is doing, it's a choice to die spiritually. So while this um, serpent is tempting Eve, the questions in my mind are, where is Adam? Is he standing right there not opening his mouth and watching this happen? Um, Is she alone? Does she have to take this fruit back to him and get him to eat it? Those are not um, immediately clear to us, but we know that as soon as they eat it, they become ashamed. There are portrayed here three stages of sinning. First, we are tempted. The serpent presents the opportunity. Then we are challenged. Um, God's guidance is twisted. God said, don't, but the serpent says, really? Is that really what he meant? And God's instruction meant for our good as a healthy boundary and a protection then gets reshaped or reframed as deprivation, like God doesn't want you to have fun, or God doesn't, in this case, God doesn't want you to be as smart as God is. Um, And the third stage is that now you're persuaded. Um, Eve entertains the idea. She turns it over into her head. She gets comfortable with it, and she acts. She's persuaded. That's what happens. We're tempted, we're challenged, and then we are persuaded. The serpent here has long been considered Satan. This was true both in early Jewish and as well as Christian interpretations. Um, We identify this serpent as Satan, and John Wesley did too. Satan, or the Satan, as we would pronounce it, is just another word um, that is used as a name. The Satan simply means accuser. Um, Satan is the accuser of believers. So in the same way that Adam becomes Adam, a name, Satan, or accuser, comes to be Satan as a name. Even the original question that the serpent asks has an agenda. It's not just an innocent conversation starter. It gets her to state the rule so that he can twist it. Then he reframes it as attractive by telling the truth, by telling a particular perspective of the truth. Um, Satan is called the father of lies. The thing is, he doesn't usually lie. It's not so much that Satan will lie to you, but that um, he'll just not tell you the whole truth. Because they would become more like God by eating this fruit, because now they would know both good and evil, when to this point they've only known and experienced good. But they won't become entirely like God. They won't become equal to God. They simply will now carry this burden of knowing that all is not always good. Um, He actually plays on her affection for God, her desire to be more like God, to be more like Him. Um, She's not born with pride and rebellion. She's born good. Pride and rebellion come with the fall, and so it will be characteristic moving forward. 
but he's really playing on her love for God. Future generations will be born with this tendency, but it just wasn't part of original creation, at least not as these stories tell us. So Adam and Eve now know that they've made a mistake. Um, Something has changed, and so they make their first clothes, and they hide from God. This is still our tendency when we do wrong, is to cover and hide, to run from God. But God already knows. God knows what they've done, and yet he asks. And Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. This is another thing that is um, inherent to human nature, is that we want to blame others rather than taking responsibility. God generously beckons them when he calls. Um, he goes looking for them. When, when we run from God, God comes looking for us. That's provenient grace seeking us out and trying to draw us back. Um, Adam answers God's question, and then God follows up with two additional questions. They are penetrating questions designed to explore the contours of what they've done. God forces them to face the truth of what they have done by stating it. God doesn't ask anything of the serpent. God doesn't hear testimony from the serpent. He doesn't need to. Um, it's very possible that the serpent didn't even hear, that the serpent has wandered on off. Having done what he accomplished, he, he leaves. The tempter abandons them before the consequences come. Um, there's no one to offer the same challenges And to make God seem unreasonable, remember the serpent portrayed God as being unreasonable. He just doesn't want you to be as... He's not here to make that argument. He's already run off. The punishments that they receive are natural and logical um, corollaries for the role that each of them play. Um, They are guilty parties. And this is a feature of Old Testament justice is that we get the consequences of what we've chosen. The serpent is cursed. This explains why snakes crawl, um, why some of them attempt to stand up, like the way snake charmers, the snake stands up, as well as for why they like to climb up in trees. They're trying to regain some of their former stature and status. Um, It also explains why humans, especially women, tend to be afraid of snakes. Um, The serpent has gone from being the shrewdest and most cunning of all the animals, to being the most humble and universally despised. Um, Verse 15 is a note about promise. Um, An offspring of Eve will strike the head of the serpent, meaning will be able to kill it, to rob it of its power. The snake will only be able to strike this offspring's heel. Um, The snake will be under his feet. This is seen to us as a promise of Jesus um, regarding um, sin, even though not literally snakes. Um, Jesus will put sin under his feet. He will put Satan, the accuser and the tempter, under his feet. But it also describes our human condition very literally with snakes in that we tend to step on snakes or come near them and get bit on our lower extremities. Um, and so there's this constant back and forth and fear of one another. The woman is punished, but she is not cursed. For ancient Israelites, this explained 
the close association between sexual pleasure and the pain of childbirth. Um, this pain of childbirth impairs her role as man's companion. Their relationship becomes damaged and it changes. They're no longer equal partners because one has tricked and betrayed the other. Some say that her desire for her husband is her desire to control the husband, to lord it over him, and so they will wrestle for power throughout the rest of time. Others say that um, this is why man is given headship over the woman, is because the woman is now inherently easier to deceive. She's unfit for leadership. She needs to be controlled and under um, the authority of a man. Um, others see this as the beginning of domestic abuse, that she will still love and desire him even when he is abusive, when he rules over her. Um, the man's punishment is that he will now have to work hard. Before, he was the caretaker. He was the master gardener and the tender of all things creation. The earth was naturally fruitful, and he would reap the benefit of that. His burden was easy. Now, however, the ground is cursed. Um, it will no longer be his partner that easily um, bears up its fruit. So now he has to become a partner, a farmer, and work at it. In verses 20 through 24, we finally have Eve named. Um, not just Isha, but given the name Eve. Um, this word sounds like living. So she is the mother of all living. And God kills the first animals to make durable clothes for these sinful human beings. Um, these facts are, are similar to some other Near Eastern um, creation myths that explain why humans must die. Um, they die because they've lost access to the tree of life. But God banishes them as an act of mercy and grace. The very nature of existence has changed. Um, they still get to exist, however, but they're sent to a place of toil, but not a place of torment. Um, immortality, to be trapped in an endless life with this knowledge of good and evil, with the susceptibility of disobeying God, of ending up having to suffer the consequences and actually, because of the choice to sin, place yourself as opposed to the Creator to live forever in that state would actually be cruel. Human life is only authentic if it is in balance, if it balances the boundless potential of life on one hand with the realization that life is short on the other, that we need to make the most of our time. Moving into chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7, we see that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. One farms and one tends. There is the phrase that we see throughout the Old Testament that talks about the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. That simply means that the land is suitable both for tending herds as well as um, farming. When it says milk, that's the milk that the animals provide one another. They eat the grass in the pasturelands, and they give birth to animals that they nurse. So that's the milk. The honey is most likely the sticky substance that comes off of dates, off of the date palm. 
Um, that was how they made honey. And so there's also the ability to tend or cultivate crops. The promised land is going to be the closest to regaining Eden that human beings are able to get. The Lord regards Abel and therefore accepts his offering, but the Lord doesn't regard Cain and so doesn't accept him or his offering. It's unlikely that the content of Cain's offering is the reason that it's rejected. Um, Both the bringing of the yield of the ground of crops, as well as sacrificing animals, were both part of the Jewish tithe system of the sacrificial system. So it's unlikely that it's simply because Cain is a farmer that he's rejected. It seems to be the attitude of the giver. This would be consistent with what the prophets say, how they insist that worship has to reflect the state of our hearts and that we have to live out our values in the world, not just go through religious ritual. This seems to be supported by Cain's conversation with God when God says, if you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Um, Verse 7b has a correlation with Luke chapter 22, verse 31. It's the first occurrence of the actual word sin. Um, Our attitude can make us vulnerable to sin. In this case, uh, jealousy is the attitude that makes Cain vulnerable to sinning. Um, This story may also be offered as explanation for why there's strife between different social groups in early civilization, between those who farm and those who herd. Um, Cain is being told here that he needs to master his desire. He needs to check his heart and realign himself with God. Um, And this is a result of free will, that we are able to control our desires. We possess the ability to control our impulses to to quite a large extent even if not entirely. Verses 8 through 16 now talk about Cain murdering Abel. This is an act of premeditated murder. He's jealous. He wants to kill him, and so he devises a way to get him out where he can. That's premeditation. Now, not only do humans die at the end of life, but they can die at the hands of other humans. So spiritual death... The result of sin also contributes to um, premature physical death. In verse 9, there's the question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are. Anytime someone says, I'm not responsible for other humans, I don't have to be good to the poor, I don't have to be nice to my neighbor, am I my brother's keeper? I want to go, you understand you're quoting the murderer, right? Maybe you, maybe you don't want to imitate the murdering brother. Um, we are also told that Abel's blood cries out to God. Blood contains the life force. Blood is life. And this is one of the reasons that Jews do not eat food that contains blood, so you can't eat your meat raw or undercooked, and that they do not drink blood because it's the life force. Um, so the blood cries out against the injustice and having been separated The life force has been separated from the life body. Verse 11, Cain's punishment is one step further um, than it was for his father. For Adam, the ground is cursed because of him. 
Now for Cain, the ground is cursed from him. Um, He will not even be able to get it to yield up for him, even when he tolls. Um, He has sown blood into the ground. He has sown seeds of violence, sinfulness, and death. And so seeds of death will not yield a harvest of life-giving crops for him. He will no longer be able to be a farmer. He will have to be a wanderer. He will be without home territory. And that means he will be vulnerable because he has nowhere to really belong. Cain perceives this as banishment from the very presence of God. And that seems too much. That is more than he can bear. It's unstated whether he actually had to go from the presence of God or whether he just does go out of shame and a feeling of separation. When one kills the image of God present in another human being, it disrespects the one in whose image he or she is made. So Cain has disrespected God by killing another human being who's made in God's image. But he's also diminished the the value of the image of God in himself. Um, And so we find ourselves separated, removed from God when we do that. God, however, protects him with a vengeance pronouncement as well as a mark. Um, It's interesting to me that there was support of the African slave trade that argued back here that the mark of Cain was dark skin. And this was perpetuated by Christians. Um, In particular, it was perpetuated by the Southern Baptist Convention, by Southern Baptists who used this argument for why it was okay for us to own other people, particularly for us to own other dark-skinned people because that was the mark of Cain. However, all of the descendants of Cain are going to be destroyed in the flood. So the mark of Cain doesn't still exist, by the way. Rabbis vary on what the mark of Cain actually is. One of the common ideas is that it was one of the letters from the proper name of God that God tattoos on Cain's head. Remember that the proper name of God was Yahweh, and it's the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H. So it's either a Y, an H, or a W, or a V. And many of those rabbis suggest that it is the letter V, the Vav, um, which is the third letter of God's proper name, the one from which we get the letter V or W. Um, This letter was the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, So it's one less than the perfect number, which is seven. And six has also been called the human number. It was the sixth letter in Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, and Phoenician. Um, These were, so it was universal to the languages of the time. Now, the Phoenician language comes into the Greek and to the Latin and down to us. In verses 17 through 24, we get the genealogy of Cain. Cain's family unfolds for us. And notice um, that his son is Enoch. There is a city called Enoch, and there's a grandson called Enoch. So it's both two people in a place. Lamech is the first polygamist. He takes two wives. There are two main points to Cain's genealogy. 
The first one is that it explains the origins of the first humans as cultural institutions. So there's urban, there's urbanization, there's pastoral agriculture, there's music, and there's metallurgy or working with hard substances. Um, It also appears here to tell us that Cain's violence becomes intensified in his children. They exact inhumane vengeance, murder for a mere word. So it's out of proportion to the response. So when sin is allowed to reign in our lives, it takes over and it continues to grow and become stronger and bigger and it will take over. In verses 25 and 26, um, Adam and Eve have another son. They have Seth and Seth has Enosh. And now it says that people start to invoke the name of the Lord to call upon the God that we um, adhere to. Cain's people were productive. They were social um, and cultural innovators. Um, they were innovative in the way they were able to think, but they were also arrogant and violent. Seth's people are righteous. So there's a contrast being given to us here. Seth also begins a trend that will occur over and over of focusing on the younger son rather than the firstborn. The heroes of the Bible are notable for their character and their deeds, not for some encoded social status. So the world has been created. Humans have been created in a good and perfect and comfy state in the garden. We've then messed it all up with the fall and had to be kicked out. Um, We've tried to learn to live outside the garden, but now sin is present among us, and we've learned to be evil to one another, including to kill. And now we are having to learn to live with all of this evil around us. And that takes us through Genesis 3 and 4.